Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hi, this is the Thirsty Podcast, and my name is Jeremy Lightnin. Uh, I'm the campus pastor at Shoreland Lutheran High School, and I am here with Ziggy the Vulture. That is a character from the Jungle Book. Uh, Ziggy the Vulture was at the end of the movie there. That's right, and pattern after the Beatles. I didn't know that. That is new information for me. There you go. And now you have to watch it with your wife and boys and sing along to to the songs that uh, was inspired by the Beatles. If the four guys at the end there had with their British accents. That makes sense now. Um, so today we're going to take a look at Second uh, Timothy, just four chapters. Uh, so uh, maybe a little bit less than normal uh, for our podcast, but uh, nonetheless, uh, we've we've already talked about Paul writing letters to the pastors uh, Titus and Timothy, and how even though Titus and Timothy were pastors, they were sort of supervisory, uh, had a larger purview of checking over uh, a group of pastors or a region of uh, pastors of local parishes. So today we might call them uh, something like district presidents or circuit pastors, um, maybe in other denominations you would call them a bishop. Um, but uh, the fact is that uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy is a, a little bit more final. Uh, it's getting to be more the end of Paul's earthly journey, and uh, he talks about uh, getting ready to leave this life. Yeah, in verse 3 he says, uh, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. And as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. So Paul is in prison, and like Jeremy said, he's at the end of his life, and we'll focus on that, especially in verse four or chapter four. But instead of complaining, he's thanking God. He's praying. He's got lots of time in prison to thank and pray. It's kind of like I invite my homebound members who feel they can't do anything anymore. I just ask them, "Well, can you pray?" Well, yeah, Pastor, I can pray. Well, I tell them, "Then pray." Pray for your pastor, pray for your family, pray for the church, pray for God's kingdom. And then Paul says, when I remember your tears, I long to see you so I may be filled with joy. And it's understandable that Paul is eager to see Timothy one more time and that they're both crying and they want to see each other. You know, these are manly tears. And I think then of, uh, we had a practice down in Kentucky, which was, Uh, right next to Fort Knox military base. And we would have members and they would join the church, but then they leave every uh, one, two or three years as they got transferred around. And we would have a practice that on the last Sunday that family was going to be there, we commissioned them as missionaries to wherever they were going. And then we sang, God be with you till we meet again, because we may not see them again. And there were obviously tears because you're going to miss people here in this lifetime. Uh, as I was looking over this, I wanted to, first of all, inform our listeners that uh, we are today recording from my classroom at Shoreland Lutheran High School, uh, and so there are some sports practices and uh, kids roaming the hallways a little bit now that after school is done, um, that, that school is done. Uh, so if you hear anything in the background, that is what is going on, um, and uh, we'll try not to let it disturb the recording too much. But um, one thing that just struck me as I was looking at these verses right now is uh, in verse 3 when it says that 
I serve, Paul wrote to Timothy, I serve with a clean conscience as my ancestors did. And what is striking for me in that is that Paul spends so much time talking about how his old way of uh, doing things and believing things under the Pharisaical system of Judaism is completely dead and that there is no hope in salvation by works or in your heritage. Uh, there is no uh, pleasing God based on what your background is. Um, and yet here, he says something very positive about his ancestors. And I, I think you might recall how his ancestors were not uh, living during the time when the Messiah had come. Now the, the system of Pharisaism uh, when Paul wrote this, would have been a corrupt system and based totally on works and salvation by deeds. But uh, at least what was handed down to him as far as the truths of Scripture in the Old Testament were concerned, those were valid and legitimate uh, ways of believing in God uh, by faith alone through grace. And so uh, he can say, I serve them with a clean conscience, or I serve like my ancestors who had not yet received the Savior in the flesh. Uh, they could do that with a clean conscience. In verse 5, Paul says, I remember your sin sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. So Timothy's mother and grandmother are Jewish. His father is a Gentile. But this faith is passed on from grandmother to mother to Timothy. Last week, I was talking to two mothers uh, who each had two-year-olds. And uh, the one mom is, was brand new to the church, and she had a two- and four-year-old. She said, they just can't sit still. And the other one, uh, mom and dad were there with their baby and two-year-old, and that two-year-old definitely did not sit still. They left right after church, and I was feeling bad. I chased them down and talked to them in the parking lot, and uh, I gave the same encouragement to both sets of parents, saying, uh, I was encouraging, it was encouraging to see them there because I know they feel that they don't get anything out of the service. But they were right in saying, uh, but we know our kids have to be here. And I said, you're right. Kids cannot learn how to sit still in church unless they sit still in church. You have to make them sit still. And, and even, you have to be in church. You have to be in church. And then they, they can't learn how to sit still in church by watching it on TV or the computer either. Amen. <laughs> And so uh, I encourage the parents, you know, bring some soft toys with them. You know, we've got the children's devotion in the middle of the service to break things up. And the one mom said, and I've never heard this before, but she said, uh, I heard that a child's worldview is set by the age five. So we're going to make sure that we're here as often as we can be. Mm. You know, and that's often, and that, that's, that's awesome. And it's, it's so encouraging to have parents that take this seriously because they pass the faith on to the kids. And I remind the parents all the time, you may not feel like you're getting anything out of it. You may be totally frustrated, but those kids are getting out of it. And I can hear it from the front of church when these little kids are singing the hymns they know, they're saying the Lord's Prayer out loud, and they're catching on. Now, uh, you've done research on this chapter of uh, 2 Timothy more recently than I have. Uh, so if you want to set me straight on this, you can uh, certainly correct me, and I will accept that correction. Uh, but I just wanted to point out one other thing in chapter 1, and that is in verse 9 when it talks about a holy calling. 
Uh, it says, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Um, at first, I was minded to think that uh, that would be a good opportunity to talk about the divine call of um, called workers, for instance, pastors, but also teachers or uh, principals that handle the word of God in a public way when they uh, deliver or preach and teach it. Um, but I'm starting to think now that when it says not because of our works, uh, because of his own purpose and grace, uh, and before time began, that the holy calling is calling us to faith right. more than uh, the divine call of a public speaker of God's word. And that's the way I would take it, too. Uh, you and I do talk about a holy calling of uh, being in the ministry as pastors. But I think, yeah, you're talking here, or Paul's talking here to Timothy about a holy calling from the very beginning, being called to faith. Um, I also just, in passing, wanted to mention this beautiful verse, verse 10, that uh, our Savior Jesus Christ, our, our Savior Christ Jesus, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Uh, that's something that you hear Quite often, for instance, in funeral services or orders of service for graveside or deathbed visits, that um, when Jesus died and came back from the dead, he actually obliterated death and he made immortality a, a, a reality. Not to do a little rhyming there, uh, he made immortality a, a thing. And, and we can now say it, immortality is not only possible, it's, it's real, it's he brought it to light through the good news of forgiveness. And then I wanted to focus on verse 7. For God did not give us a timid spirit, but a spirit of power and love and sound judgment. And I had written something as I was working on my notes for the podcast, and I ended up sharing it on Facebook. And uh, for a, a lowly Wells pastor, it's kind of like viral. You know, I shared it, and it was like, uh, shared over 50 times and liked and so forth, like 200 times. So, uh just to, this is what I had written. Uh, we're living in a post-Christian society. Everything that used to be awful and abhorrent is now seen as acceptable. When Christians speak out, we're the ones who are then accused of being unacceptable, awful, and abhorrent. So what do we do? We become timid and ashamed. We clam up and shut up. We cancel ourselves before our c culture can cancel us. But St. Paul tells Timothy that God has given us a spirit of power as opposed to timidity. Such power enables us Christians to testify to our faith and bear up under suffering. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We're on the side of God, goodness, and righteousness. For God did not give us a timid spirit, but a spirit of power and love and sound judgment. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, join with me in suffering for the gospel while relying on the power of God. So speak out. You have the spirit of God's power, love, and sound judgment behind your words because they're really God's words. That sounds like a tall order that you just made for us. And that is... Um I know it's hard for me not to be timid. Uh, I, believe it or not, I, I'm sure there are students of mine that would disagree, but um, I probably am more tempted to be a people pleaser than to be uh, bold and to, to you know, speak out and try to, not try to make enemies, but end up making enemies by uh, rebuking wrongdoing. Um, and if you are like that, if you're like me, uh, chapter two, really offers you a nice 
way to picture the work that you do uh, when you have to speak out or be not timid. Um, Paul uses three analogies in verses four through seven. Um, he uses, he says, think of your work as a Christian like that of a soldier, uh, or you could think of it as athletic training uh, to, to get a gold medal or a, a crown of athletic victory, or you could think of it like farming. And any one of those three involves getting blisters on your hands. It involves uh, uh, sweating and, and you know, f- maybe facing some disappointment and some setbacks, uh, whether you're a soldier or uh, an athlete or a farmer. Yeah, and then uh, verse 8, Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, a descendant of David, in accordance with my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Uh, Paul didn't worry about his imprisonment, uh, keeping the gospel from being spread, because God's word was not chained. Here, Paul may have been sitting in a jail cell, but God's word was still being spread. That even though Paul was in prison, God's word wasn't. Uh, And many other people were proclaiming that message of salvation of Jesus in many other places, and God's mission would be carried out. It doesn't depend on one person. In fact, in the very first couple verses of chapter 2, Paul is giving Timothy the uh, reliable way of training uh, future teachers and preachers for the gospel. And, and there I think of, uh, that I think we in the Wells have one of the best systems in the world of training our young people. And we've got Shoreland Lutheran High School to do that, but you know, Shoreland, like other area Lutheran high schools, the primary purpose is not training up uh, men and women for the public ministry. But our prep schools are our two prep schools, and then going on to Martin Luther College, and then to the seminary, and then we have uh, principal training, and we have mentor training for pastors. We have uh, we have missionaries that help train new missionaries, and so all of this is trying to encourage men and women to become pastors and teachers, and then training them to stay in the ministry. Um, as long as you brought attention to those verses, it's a neat picture of Christ's dual nature, him being both God and man, uh, it, it says, it, this is really what the Christian religion is, is remembering. Um, it, it, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to perform any work. It's just keeping in your mind this truth, this remembering Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, a descendant of David. Uh, right there, you've got, first of all, he's a descendant of David. That means he, uh, he, he got dressed and had a human body, and uh, anything you can say about a human other than sinfulness, you can say about Jesus. But he's also risen from the dead, and that is something that uh, could only happen to somebody who is uh, blessed by God. Uh, it, it really is more of a connection to his divine nature. Um, and then uh, he ends verse 9 by saying that God's word is the thing that converts hearts. Um, you've got some talk there about election and uh, how I, he, Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Um, but then uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, hymns. And this is maybe pertaining to what you said before about our second to none 
worker training system in the Wisconsin Lutheran Synod, uh, Paul is using what seems to be a hymn that the ancient believers in the early Christian church would have used. He says, Indeed, if we have died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Um, I, I think that a lot of times it's important to say God's word is the Bible. That is God speaking to us directly. Um, but you can also get the same message across when you take words of God and uh, reframe them in, in a poetic way. Um, it's also portraying God's word, conveying it to you through um, the, the poetry that our, our hymn writers have given us. And Paul sort of gives a, a, his affirmation of that in uh, verses 11 through 13. And since you talked about hymnals, we just had a worship committee meeting at Water of Life the other day. We're, we're really excited that we had gotten in our shipment of the brand new Christian worship hymnals for the wells, and we're going to have like a book breaking in party on our Thanksgiving Eve service. So we're going to have, uh, you, that'll be the last time we use the red Christian worship hymnals. And then at the end of the service, I'm going to show a one-minute video showing people how to properly break in a book so you don't break the binding. And then we're going to do that for all the new hymnals, put those into the racks, and then take out the uh, red hymnals and take them to the back of the sanctuary, but then encourage people, take one home. Uh, because uh, I don't know if you're going to join me with it in doing this or if the Lord blesses us finally with a second pastor after calling for a year, uh, our idea is to at least once a week, if not more, to have video and written devotions using hymnals, to use the hymns, because, like you said, Jeremy, the hymns speak to the heart, whereas sometimes just the words uh, of Scripture speak to the mind. Um, there are a, a couple of other thoughts throughout this chapter of Second Timothy um, that sort of reflect what we've talked about already in First Timothy. Uh, Paul warns against fighting about words, uh, picking out little you know phrases or terms that uh, you turn into a fight where there doesn't need to be a fight. Uh, pointless chatter, uh, false teachers spreading their message like gangrene, uh, and and Paul names names. Um, I think that's instructive. Um, yeah, th thinking of the gangrene. Uh, when I read that, I was thinking of a number of years ago, a lady who's now sainted in heaven, but she had gangrene in her legs. Mm. And so I went to the hospital. She had her legs amputated. And she was surprisingly in very good spirits. And so she said to me as I'm sitting at her bedside, Pastor, you want to see my legs? <laughs> and uh, she was very excited to show me, but her friend who was over in the corner was shake, shaking her head new and then said, uh, Jen, I don't think Pastor needs to see those. And <laughs> thankfully, she didn't pull up the the beds to uh, the sheets for me to see that. Was, was this pre or post amputation? Oh, this was post amputation. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it just would have been stumps, but I, I really don't want to see sure, that. Sure, sure. But gangrene, the idea is that gangrene spreads, and that's what false doctrine does. Mm. And that's why in verse 15, Paul says, 
correctly handling the word of truth that you and I as pastor, Jeremy, you know, we examine the context. We mind the teachings of Scripture. We don't just, uh, I think this is what happens in other churches with other pastors is they come up with a teaching that they want to, say, preach on or teach on or write a book on, and then they go and pull verses out of context to back up their teaching. As opposed to what we do is, because I'm working now on my Thanksgiving sermon and writing some devotions for Christmas and so forth, here's a Bible verse that's chosen for these uh, for these festival services. What does this say to God's people at this time? Instead of saying, this is what I think people need to hear, now let's go find a Bible verse to fit it. That's kind of, uh, isn't that what they call eisegesis? Is yeah. Saying instead, exegesis is saying, I'm going to first look at God's word and then draw conclusions. Eisegesis is more saying, uh, I have my own conclusions and then I'm going to look for a passage uh, to force my point. Um, uh, you've got another mention of the article of doctrine on election in verse 19. Nevertheless, God's foundation stands firm, having this seal the Lord knows those who are his. Uh, and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord keep away from wickedness. Um, those are uh, verses that tell you about predestination, actually. Um, you wouldn't think so because they don't mention it specifically, but uh, when it's, it's like Jesus saying, I know my sheep. Um, and election is not something that you can see. Uh, you can't point out and say, oh, I can, I can tell you are one of the elect. I can say that you are showing signs or... or proof that you are one of the elect, but um, it's only the Lord who knows those who are his. Um, And then the other thing to do with election is not to say, uh, well, I am predestined, so I can't do anything to ruin that. That's true. You can't do anything to uh, undermine your predestination, uh, but you weren't predestined just to live your life any way that you want. Uh, you were predestined so that you would keep away from wickedness. That's what the end of verse 19 says. And then the last few verses, it's Paul saying to Timothy, uh, you know, not to quarrel, but uh, be gentle in correcting those who oppose him. God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So they may come to their senses, escape from the devil's trap. There, I think of apologetics. So, Jeremy, what is apologetics? Uh I think the best way to define it is not so much prove. I think a lot of people are afraid of apologetics because uh, they think that it means to prove people or to, um, excuse me, to uh, persuade people into becoming believers. And that's really something only the Holy Spirit can do. Uh, The book of Acts does talk an awful lot about offering proofs of the resurrection and I think that is uh, an important part of apologetics. But I think the best definition I've heard of apologetics is uh, you're doing it right if you are listening to people's objections to Christianity and then offering a response or giving an answer. That's the way Peter talks about it, giving an answer to show, I listened to your argument and I want to show you why uh, that's, that's not a reason for you to reject Christianity. Sure, and with part of, part of my eighth grade curriculum is uh, the the homework that the students have is to do apologetics. So, for example, and I just started doing it this week. That after a semester, 
in, they were just writing things. And now the second semester, I'm giving having them stand up in front of the class with a classmate and give a presentation, just a minute. But the first one was on uh, proving that the miracle of the walls of Jericho falling down really happened. And the kids wanted to say, well, because the Bible says so. And I challenged them. If you are a non-Christian, that's not good enough. Yeah. You have to knock down their straw man. That's the idea. You're not proving scripture. You're proving that their straw man, their arguments. The opposite of scripture is not believable. Yeah. And so I wanted them to be able to show this non-Christian person who doesn't believe in the miracle of the walls of Jericho falling down because they blew their trumpets and they marched around seven times to be able to show things like, well, this happened because we archaeologists found the, uh, the grain well, because this happened in the springtime, because the flax that was covering the spies when oh, they yeah. were hiding. Sure. You know, so it, it's there to show that uh, there wasn't anything left there because the, uh, because the Jews had taken it all for the Lord, to show that everything was torn down except for one corner because that's where Rahab lived. Hmm. You know, all of those kinds of things. And there are a lot more that they, that they found it, even, you know, that... Jericho could be over a fault line, and so God could have used an earthquake. Mm-hmm. You know, just all of those things to be able to prove you know, knocking down those straw men. And just to be able, those are things that I want to increase even more so at WLS. And I know I talk to you all the time about if Shoreland's ever going to have apologetics in your curriculum here. Yeah. Um, in chapter three, the, uh, a lot of the chapter is talking about, uh, well, it it's, may come across as doom and gloom. Um, Paul is describing how people will fall away in the last time. They'll be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Uh, it, it's all things that sound very familiar to us today, uh, certainly. Um, I, I just in passing want to mention that uh, verses 8 and 9 uh, show you that Paul had a very high esteem for the Old Testament, that it's, it's not that uh, there's two gods or two uh, versions of, of the true faith. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament version. No, it's all one Christian faith. And uh, Paul uses the example of Janus and Jambres from Moses' time uh, to make a point about uh, you, modern do, times. Do you know who those guys were? Uh, well, no. Okay. Please tell me. According to Jewish tradition, these were uh, two of the Egyptian magicians or the sorcerers who opposed Moses. So the only times that they're mentioned in Scripture is here, so we don't know their names from Scripture, Ah. but according to Jewish tradition, that's who these guys were. See, uh, if if I'd have done my homework, I would have been up on that. Thank you for thank you for doing your homework. Well, I just thank Dr. Brook for writing all the notes for the, <laughs> for the EHV. Um, I wanted to spend the most time, though, in this chapter talking about um, verses uh, 14 through 17. Well, before you get to verse 14, then, sure. just verse 12 of, uh, indeed, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So uh, Old Testament prophets, they were persecuted. Uh, New Testament prophet like John the Baptist was persecuted. Jesus was put to death. The apostles were persecuted. All of them were put to death except for St. John. 
Timothy could, be, could expect to be persecuted, and so can we. Uh, John 15, 20, Jesus says, Remember the saying I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. If they hold on to my word, they will hold on to yours as well. So as Christians, we should not shy away from persecution. Yeah, it's never fun. And yet, if we're not being persecuted, we need to wonder if people even notice that we are Christians. Because Paul says, live a godly life in Christ and then you will be persecuted. Not maybe or it can happen. You will be. Uh, in verses uh, 14 through 17, uh, you have a great many important things to uh, sort out and, and think about. Uh, one of them is in verse 15. Uh, it says, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Uh, and so th- that's a question I get a lot from students that uh, may not come from uh, a Lutheran background uh, here at Shoreland uh, is, can babies believe? And, and here we have Paul very clearly saying, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now, I know that there are translations, particularly the King James or the New King James Version, that say, from childhood. So I think it's important to point out that the Greek word for childhood here does mean anything as young as a nursing infant. Um, so if, if you're going to try to say that infants can't or don't believe, um, this isn't a strong enough passage to uh, uh, say that. It, in fact, it does just the opposite. Um, uh, so there's an argument for, among other things, infant baptism. Uh, before we move on from that is in our apologetics assignment for the eighth graders yesterday, I had given them the assignment as we were studying Hannah, who was unable to have children until she prayed to the Lord and God gave her Samuel. So they, the eighth graders had to, uh, had to give a presentation as they were ministering to a family that couldn't get pregnant or a family that had a miscarriage or that they had lost a child through sudden infant death syndrome. And as we were talking about the last one, one of the hardest funerals I ever did was for a little baby that was born in our congregation uh, about four to six weeks early, uh, that his two older brothers, the day he was born, they were supposed to be baptized in church. Hmm. And I got a text from dad, we're not going to make it today. Uh, My wife is in the hospital giving birth. And the baby was healthy, so I didn't baptize Hmm. because we were planning on doing all three together. And then a week later... He died in the crib, mm. and that was really hard. And what we talked about with the, with the classes, if the baby had been baptized, you just point to that baptism over and over again in the funeral. Mm-hmm. So I said, but he wasn't baptized. What do I point to? And I pointed, this is a great passage, but, and then to use this along with what I preached on was John the Baptist in the womb of his mother when mm-hmm. Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to him, and when... John, in the womb, hears the voice of the mother of the Son of God. He leaps in his womb. And I pointed out to the class and to all those that were gathered for the funeral that mom and dad, by God's grace, they were there every Sunday in church while that child was in the womb. They were there uh, at home reading the Christ-like devotions with their kids. I was there in the, in the hospital having a devotion and prayer with the baby when he was born. And to point to that as a child can believe. And I know for a fact that uh, there, there will probably be listeners, or there are listeners, 
maybe one or two, that would immediately say, uh, well, John the Baptist with uh, Mary and Elizabeth was a special, unique circumstance. And I I will be quick to agree. Yes, yes, it was a special, unique circumstance uh, that it was the Son of God and it was the forerunner, uh, both in the same same room. Um, I think, though, the point that I would want to make is let's leave all of the specialness of the circumstance out of it, and you still have uh, sound waves traveling through a, a, a uterine wall. Right, because what I say is, when I teach this, is if you know, doctors and experts will say all the time that you and I as dad, with their wives each giving birth, while they're pregnant, is... Go and talk to the child. Put your mouth up to the womb and talk to the baby. They say, uh, play Bach and Mozart while the baby's in the womb, so they come out really smart. Especially Bach. If they can recognize your and my voices as dad, I always teach logically they can definitely understand the voice of the the father, not the father. I don't want to take too much more time on this, but I have often talked about hearing... Uh, on NPR, National Public Radio. Whoa. So this is pretty progressive uh, source here. They had a special one time I heard about um, reading to little kids and how they were saying, uh, these experts on this, this special interview were saying, you should start reading to your child uh, as soon as they are out of the womb. Uh, that, that it just makes... Now, that's from a purely secular standpoint... Um, in order to get them to have the most advantage, the best grades, the uh, highest intelligence levels, uh, start reading to them uh, even as soon as they are out of the womb. And what I noticed was they were trying very hard not to say before they get out of the womb, but I think they wanted to wow. because uh, it, I, what I was guessing is if they would have said, uh, read to them or talk to them even before they leave the womb, that would be admitting that a child in the womb is actually a human. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that is worth discussing in verse 16, uh, there's lots of things, actually, that we could spend hours discussing, but I think just to touch on it briefly is that Scripture is God-breathed. I actually just talked about this in uh, religion class today. Uh, what, how can uh, a student asked, how can we say that God wrote these words when you also say the Apostle Paul wrote these words? And the fact is, um, here is, is a good way of explaining it. God breathed into the apostles that wrote the Bible uh, the words that he wanted them to speak, or to write, I should say. And um, that word is uh, used in other cases in the Greek language for um, when wind blows into the sails of ships to take them where they want to go. So you could think of the apostles like the ship and God is breathing into them to take them take take their words where God wants them to go or like breathing into a wind instrument. Uh, so it's it, you could have lots of different instruments just like there are lots of different Bible writers and uh, no matter what, um, it's always the same musician breathing into that wind instrument. It's God uh, speaking through them. And then... The useful is the other one I always like talking about. Um, one of my favorite teachers and a great influence on my life uh, would always say over and over that the Word of God is supremely practical. Uh, and I think that's something we don't emphasize enough with our young people. You, you talk about apologetics. I want to talk about 
making practical use of God's word, I think our young people think, well, reading or listening to the Bible is kind of like uh, uh, getting inoculated or injected. It's just, you got to listen to it or hear it, hear God, listen to God's word because it's going to give you some kind of special Holy, Holy Spirit juju or something. <laughs> um, but uh, it's more than that. It actually is useful. Like you can take passages of scripture and do things with them. You can make use of them in your everyday life. And with that being useful in your everyday life, it happened to be, and this is where I think God is working, obviously, where I was working on this specific section when my daughter Lydia, who's a freshman at University of Dubuque in Iowa, uh, has Snapchatted me that's saying that she had to give a five-minute presentation in her worldview class on is there life after death? You know, a lot of people would be very terrified about any kind of thing like that, a presentation, presentation on afterlife and so forth. And she was uh, all gung-ho. She, how am I going to cram all of this in in five minutes? And, you know, she went and she hammered in that, you know, I'm Lutheran, I believe in the five solas of faith, grace, uh, scripture alone, uh, to Jesus Christ alone and to God's glory alone. Uh, she talked about, I'm not sure if she fit in Saints Triumphant because I did encourage her saying, well, this is the time of the church here to talk about that as well. But we did talk about this may be the only time some of these classmates ever hear the true gospel. And it's from you in five minutes. And she did say that afterwards, one of the students stopped her and said, uh, asked her about being Lutheran. And because he was Catholic, and he said, "I don't know anything about this," and uh, so it it, op- it opened up an opportunity for her then to say, "Hey, I've got this church that I go to. It's a half hour away, but there's a campus ministry." But even like you said, uh, equipping you for every good works. One of the things that we talked about last night in our Water of Life Evangelism Committee meeting is in the new year we want to work on some growth groups and some small group Bible studies where I'm going to encourage people uh, that maybe we've got someone who is very good on parenting because he's taught in schools for a long time to just give a class on parenting, but not a big class like on a Sunday morning. 15 people in a home, someone else who knows all about health, someone that might talk about gardening or raising chickens or whatever it is, and then I'll teach them how do you bring God and talk about this in a Christian manner over three, four, six weeks. But God's Word has equipped them for doing these kinds of things. Um, In chapter 4, you have a a bunch of... uh, little, I don't know what you'd call them, chestnuts. You've got some uh, gems. Uh, There's a lot of passages that are beloved uh, little sound bites uh, from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And uh, some of them are kind of specifically for pastors, but uh, also some uh, for Christians in general. Uh, A big one would be chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, be ready whether it is convenient or not, correct, rebuke, and encourage with all patience and teaching. Um, that's often one that you hear at pastor installations. Uh, you've got the warning about false doctrine and people having itching ears. Yeah, before you get to, before sure. you go on to that one, yeah, preach the word. That reminded me of a hymn that we would sing at a pastor's installation. Of uh, and I just love this opening line from Martin Franzman's hymn: "Preach you the word and plant it home to those who like or like it not. You know, whether they like it or not, you just keep preaching." And there I was thinking about, I 
I was talking last last night to three of our Water of Life students that are at Martin Luther College to become teachers, and the two Sundays after Christmas, uh, they're going to be doing devotions instead of my sermons. I'm going to write the uh, like a five to seven minute devotion for them. I told them seven minutes if you read it, five minutes if I would be speaking it because I know I talk a little faster than than they would. And uh, but I said three reasons. You're going to have to do this as seniors at MLC anyhow to do this in the Chapel of the Christ. So it's good practice for you. Two, it's, it allows the members of our congregation that support you with their prayers and their offerings to see you in action. And then third, it gives me a break so that I'm not preaching three sermons over the course of three days of Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and the Sunday after Christmas, which is the 26th. Mm. But giving them the opportunity to preach the Word just like they're going to be doing, God willing, in a few years in the classroom. Very good. Um, you, uh, you have in verse 3 that uh, warning about uh, people in the end times, or that means the whole New Testament era, really, having itching ears that uh, they want to gather around themselves teachers to tell them uh, whatever it is that they want to hear. So, so with that, Jeremy, why do you think people do not want to come more than once a lot of times to our Lutheran churches? Because you know, what, what's the very first thing after the hymn that they're going to hear that their itching ears do not want to hear from our Lutheran services? That uh, I have natural sin as uh, part of my... Uh, very soul. Yeah. And and I want you as listeners to think about that because if you've been Lutheran your entire life, it's just so natural for you. But I want you to think about how uh, striking and sharp of a message it is to someone who is coming from the outside world where nothing is wrong, where our culture says you do whatever you whatever you want to do and whatever feels good to you. And for anyone to tell you that's wrong, they're wrong. And for them to hear for the first time, uh, all the members of the church saying together, I am sinful by nature and have sinned against God in our thoughts, words, and actions. And because of that, we deserve God's punishment now and forever. That's harsh, mm-hmm. but in a good way. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then when you meet people uh, who confront that and, and maybe uh, fight back against it, um, that's why Paul goes on to say, Uh, As for you, in verse 5, as for you, keep a clear head in every situation, bear hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And he admits about himself, I am being poured out like a drink offering. Uh, The time for my departure has come. So what does that mean, being poured out like a drink offering? Uh, It would probably relate back to the Old Testament sacrificial system that one of the ways of giving an offering was just pouring out a, a fermented drink on the ground. Um, as a as a gift to to the Lord, it, it's not alcohol abuse by pouring it out on the ground, but yeah, it's part yeah. of their sacrifice. Uh, and Paul says, "This is what I feel like. I'm being poured out." He's, uh, yeah, he's ready to die as a martyr. That's what it means. Yeah. Uh, and then and then one very well known verse, verse seven: I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness. Um, it, it, again. Uh, popular thing to share with people at uh, funerals or when you are approaching your own death, um, that uh, it's, it's, it's got to be a really nice feeling to feel some of that relief to say, uh, I'm, I'm almost done with this struggle of 
bearing the cross here in this earthly life. I have fought the good fight and, and finished the race, uh, kept the faith, and now I get to look forward to the crown of righteousness. Yeah, last week I had the pleasure of preaching for Bill Temke's funeral. So Bill was blessed to be 98 years old when God called him home in his sleep. But fighting the good fight of faith. And what I mentioned in the funeral sermon is that usually when I... Uh, I'm getting ready to write a funeral sermon. I'll meet with the family ahead of time to gather stories and flesh out the sermon and make it more personal. And yet I didn't do that with this this sermon because Bill had written a a book, 49 pages on, on his life. That he gave, that he wrote for his grandkids, and knew what was going on. And one of the things that was interesting is Bill had been in the Navy, and one of the things he had written in the book, and he had told me about this too, is by God's grace again, only one time in the entire war did he get bombed. Mm. But he did write in the book. What was interesting is there were times that he would be, his ship would be in the port, and the Japanese would be bombing out on the sea, and then his ship would be out in the sea and they'd be bombing on the port. And just God's grace. But he fought the good fight and now he has this crown of righteousness. It's what all of us are fighting for. Um, I don't have much more to say on chapter 4, but uh, there is the one little passage that I always like to point out just because I can be kind of a little liturgical nerd sometimes and I like talking about things like the pastor's robes, investments. Um, It's in verse 13, and this does not prescribe or or command anything about what pastors should wear. So if if pastors don't wear a robe at all, or if they wear a certain kind of robe, that has nothing, that has no bearing on this, or this passage has no uh, instructions for that. But it is kind of neat to know uh, if you have... uh, attended the Water of Life and First Evan uh, Ascension Service here in Racine, you have seen me wear a chasuble. And there was one time also at the Water of Life Caledonia campus that I wore a chasuble for uh, conducting the divine service. Um, it sort of looks like a poncho. It's an overcoat that goes over the alb uh, and stole. And if uh, if you know the normal way that Wells pastors usually wear a robe. It's an alb. It's a white robe that goes down to the floor, and then a stole is like a scarf. Now, in this comes from ancient Roman times. The alb was kind of like the tunic or the toga that the ancient Romans would wear, and then the stole is like a scarf. It's like today what we would use for a little extra warmth around the neck. Um, and then the uh, cloak or chasuble is that's the piece of clothing Paul is talking about here in verse 13. It was an overcoat, kind of like we would wear a winter coat over your uh, uh, suit or or shirt and tie today uh, if you're in some kind of a formal business uh, dress. Um, And so he says, you see Paul is concerned about bodily things too. He says uh, to Timothy, when you come bring the cloak I left in Troas, uh, with carp, uh, with carpus and the scrolls, especially the parchments, uh, he has some practical matters that he shares with Timothy here. Well, since we're talking about those that liturgical clothing, because I saw you, Jeremy, wearing a cassock, and then I was envious, but in a good way. This was this was back in uh, Monday Thursday. Yeah, and then so the ladies at our congregation bought me a cassock. Do you want to explain what a cassock is? Uh, it's it's a little bit more of a tight-fitting, uh, button-down um, 
robe. It is uh, typically black. And uh, what you most often see it in is uh, it's worn with a surplice over it. Um, that's kind of like it corresponds to the white robe of the uh, alb. Uh, it's a little bit more billowy, uh, puffy version. So it, it kind of relates to the black robes that uh, people in the medieval church would have worn, especially if they were educators like uh, doctors in, in universities or professors, uh, and also clergy would have worn these cassocks and then uh, put the alb over it in the form of the surplice. And one of the unique things about the cassock, because I just started wearing it, I think I've worn it three times, is uh, they're designed to have 33 buttons, you know, oh. one for each year of Jesus' life. I never counted mine, so there's another new thing I've well, learned Well, it may not have 33, because there's, uh, that's what the, the gentleman I bought it from uh, said. It's designed to have 33, but they may not. Uh, okay. But he, he gave me a very good tip. He said, instead of buttoning all the buttons, is oh yeah, you know, leave the top, the bottom third buttoned, yep, and then step into it, pull it up, I, and I pull mine over my head, but yes, that's the oh. same thing I do. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and but I, I just do, I do like that cassock. I'm going to be wearing that more now during the penitential times of the year for uh, end times, Advent, and and Lent, and then I'll wear the alb. Um, the the chapter. Has a lot else we could talk about, but uh, I think a good wrap-up verse would be verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. But I'm going to wrap it up with the last verse because ah. that's, that's actually the last verse. Yes, yes, this is true. Uh, because these are Paul's last inspired words. This, this is his last book that he writes, and then he is martyred. So Paul's last words are a fitting end to his words and his life. He says, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. So listeners, we're not going to be recording next week because we record on Fridays. So Jeremy, what are you going to be doing next Friday, the day after Thanksgiving? I have not thought that far ahead, but something that will not be here at school or uh any kind of uh, ministerial work, as far as I know. All right, because I figure that with all the food that's being brought to our house for Thanksgiving, I need to go on a long bike ride to burn all of that off. True, true. Uh, so we're going to spend the rest of the year going through the book of Hebrews. Uh, so you can read ahead through the first five chapters of Hebrews that we're going to be studying in two weeks. Uh, and Jeremy, I don't know if you noticed this, but Ghostbusters... Uh, Afterlife has just been released. Uh, my girls and I are going to be going to see that over the Thanksgiving break. So this is Pastor Zarling with Ray Stance. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>